0: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we look into how to make money in space with Troy McCann. But first up, here's the news about biological malware. Viruses in your virus? Researchers from the University of Washington encoded a malicious computer program into DNA that they synthesized into biological material that when analyzed by a modern gene sequencer becomes binary code that will take over the computer. Their intention is to explore the security vulnerabilities of the whole pipeline of gene sequencing technologies and software, how they can be attacked and therefore how to safeguard them. A wet printer can synthesise DNA from the four nuclear bases, G for guanine, A for adenine, T for thiamine and C for cytosine. These DNA strands are then read with a sequencer and post-processed to create a computer text file with G's, A's, T's and C's. This computer file is used as input into a vulnerable program, which causes the program to open a network socket for the attacker to gain remote control of the computer. To be clear, this was a demonstration of possibilities, not a demonstration of a real vulnerability. The researchers at the University of Washington introduced the vulnerability into a commonly used program themselves to find out if delivering Trojan horse program code through DNA strands would get into a vulnerable program. Proof of concept. An equivalent would be wearing face makeup to full face recognition software or wearing a t-shirt to deliver malicious code to computer vision systems. The result is that they found that they could create DNA that will deliver software to give a criminal remote access through a vulnerable program on computers that process information from the gene sequencer. They also noticed that when, as is commonly done, DNA is sequenced in parallel, DNA from one sample could cause slight contamination of nucleotides into another sample. This could, in theory, be used to deliver the coded DNA that would take over the computer to somebody else's sample. This is known in security as a side channel. They analysed 13 commonly used open-source gene sequencing utility programs for security problems, and then compared them to the security of open-source software used for web servers and remote command line shells. They found that the biology software used C-library calls, known to be insecure, more often than the network software. This suggests that DNA processing software has not used modern software security best practices. The next step was to see if they could use these programs' flaws to take over a computer. They tried an attack called a buffer overflow. A buffer overflow is where a program, while writing data to a buffer in memory, mistakenly overruns the buffer's section of memory and overwrites other nearby memory locations that may contain executable code. A criminal can use a buffer overflow to deliver malicious software that would be run on the computer. They quickly found buffer overflow vulnerabilities in three commonly used gene sequence processing programs. The researchers have notified the authors of these programs so that they could clean up the security problems. Could this kind of DNA-encoded malware stop forensic scientists reading DNA from crime scenes? Or could it allow criminals to rewrite the evidence after it's been collected? Could spies change their own genes to cause DNA readers to identify them as other people? Or even to break into machines? The possibilities are multiplying. And congratulations to CubeRider for their second successful launch of student projects to the International Space Station. The tiny computer package went up on the SpaceX reusable rocket this week. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, making money in space. Troy McCann is an electrical engineer, serial entrepreneur, and founder of Moonshot X. He spoke to me at the Fishburner's co-working space about getting into the space business. I began by asking him, what is Moonshot
1: X? Moonshot X is a company that's designed to help people turn an idea into an investable space business.
0: And what's your background? How did you get into telling people how to make money in space?
1: It really all started for me in my penultimate year of university. So I studied electrical engineering, which thankfully now I've finally completed. And I was at the University of Melbourne, which doesn't actually have an aerospace engineering degree. And I'm sure if they did offer it, would have, I would have been a part of that. And I discovered this thing, these, well, we discovered these things called CubeSats. And we saw, when I say we, there's around 20 of us, students from around the university that got together and said, well, if there's high school students launching these satellites, like building them, you can hold them in your hand. they quite t- tiny. They use the same technology as your mobile phone. Um, why can't we give that a go too? At the time, I think we are a little bit arrogant because we actually we're from Melbourne and and unlike Sydney there was nothing happening in space there at least in this area there's a lot of astrophysics that sort of thing but nothing with space technology so we thought that we were it and so we spent you know two three months sort of researching okay how are we going to build this thing or you know looking at the engineering side of it we ended up coming to a conference in Sydney about three months into it realizing that one there's actually quite a thriving space industry in Australia, well much more than we thought and much more than anyone recognises. Um, but two, that one of the biggest problems that we faced was actually the legal requirements making sure that we're following the laws, whether it's the Space Activities Act, which has been reviewed, defence regulations, all this sort of thing. So that was really the start of what was became the Melbourne Space Programme. Uh, so we went back and we built a whole team of law students and that was really easy to pitch them and say, hey. You may not be good at maths. Well, this is what they said, you know, like, well, we're not good at maths. How can we get involved? And we said, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you can do space law. That's a thing. So we ended up advising the federal government on the Space Activities Act review and doing all this stuff there. So we had a great legal team on our on our program and we sort of expanded from there so we ended up including pockets of students from all around outside of just engineering and science and that was fantastic you know it was a volunteer uh, not-for-profit space program where we we're looking to build this satellite we we're doing some other things you know with space law and uh, teaching students from around high schools and primary schools so about mid last year i decided to hand over the baton let someone take over that and i really wanted to focus on helping people turn their ideas or find, you know, get inspired to have these amazing ideas, because there's so much low hanging fruit out there that most people don't think about with space, and turn them into an actual business model. And that's where Moonshot X came from.
0: So people that have ideas can come to you and get help on turning it into a business that can actually sustain itself.
1: That's exactly right. So. One of the biggest, so like I said, I'm an electrical engineer, so I've had a, had a lot to do with a lot of engineers. We are fantastic at solving problems, but we're horrible at actually understanding what the problems are to begin with. And so we make a lot of assumptions when we go through the problem-solving process. What we, what we try to train people to do is really think about, well, what is the problem you're actually solving? Because uh, a lot of the time we assume that, and if you look at something like the Segway, you know, for a non-space example, that two-wheeled thing device, you know, rolls around, all that sort of thing. Everyone thought it was really, really cool when it came out, but they went bankrupt straight away. And that's because it's a fantastic product, but no one said, oh yeah, I'll give you some money. That was like, oh no, it's cool that it exists, but someone else can pay for it. And so it's really taking that and expanding it and and showing people that even if you aren't an engineer, we can help you find the people to join your team. As long as you've got that vision behind what you're trying to achieve, and you can sell that vision to other people, we can help you find the team members to help you make it a real thing and we can help you give you the connection. So that's one of the things we offer is that huge global network of of people that are involved.
0: So if somebody approaches you and says, you know, look, I want to put satellites to look at agricultural information or Mm. whatever their idea is, what sort of expertise does it take to work out how to make that into a business?
1: Mm. There's a thousand different ways that you can solve every problem, right? And that's really the challenging part, trying to find the one or two that actually work. So it's a, that's a bit, a bit of a difficult question to answer because it could be, well, I'm an engineer. I can do electronics, so I can build the physical satellite myself, but then I need to find someone who understands how to process the data on the other end. Or I need to find someone who has the legal expertise because one of the things with space businesses is that it's a little bit different from just general startups is that you do need to have a strong knack for at least someone that can do it for looking at policy and lobbying and talking, you know, that sort of thing. So if you're looking to, for example, launch a satellite, one of the things that we would do is help you get that hardware tested on the ground because that's one of the biggest things right how do you know how to build the satellite so finding the specifications to actually get it done getting the resources to actually get it launched into space so it's space proven. And it's all about finding the stepping stones. So maybe it's too expensive to go straight from A to Z and saying, all right, I'm going to have a satellite in space for my very first milestone. We're going to be recording data and selling that to whoever. And it might be to another business, it might be to the consumer, don't know yet. And so it's all about finding tiny little experiments and, and getting smaller stepping stones. So it might be, well, we're not going to launch a satellite to begin with. It might be, well, we're going to start with a weather balloon. And we're going to start to record some data on that weather balloon might cost us, you know, $500 all that for components. We're just going to do a small experiment. And everything is really based off, you know, using the scientific method in developing your business model. And realizing that the development of the product that you're trying to sell is really the same as your business model. And the big thing that we push is making sure, like I said before already, having that vision behind it as well. So it's a little bit cliche, but I'm going to use Elon Musk as, as an example because he's really good at actually doing this. It just happens that he does space up as well. SpaceX, I'm sure everybody has heard of SpaceX by now. SpaceX didn't start off as a rocket company at all. In about 2001, Elon Musk had this idea that he wanted to, and this is the vision, you know, he's still got this. He had this idea that he wanted to make humans a multi-planetary species for all the reasons that he's outlined before. So he thought, well, what if we launch a a habitat with, you know, greenery on it? We launch it, we we put it on Mars, it's gonna inspire people and governments all around the world to get together and we'll go towards moving people to Mars. Very ambitious idea. As we know now, probably a little bit difficult to work. So Elon stepped back and said, all right, well, how can I actually make a product first and find some stepping stones to get from A to Z? So rather than going from A to Z, we'll get from A to B. That first stepping stone was to develop a rocket that could launch some satellites into earth orbit that would actually pay for themselves. And then he could funnel that, the profits from that into the next stage, which is now, as we now know as well, that's reusable rockets. So you can sort of see how he sort of goes down the chain there, and it's not about knowing how to get from A to Z, it's about having that as a vision, and that as an end goal, and finding a way from get from A to B, then from B to C, and getting closer and closer to that vision. And that's really what it's all about.
0: And isn't it expensive? I've heard from Sebastian Chowey of CubeRider that there's a lot of expenses involved in launching a satellite from an Australian company, even if you don't launch it in Australia. What does that involve?
1: So yeah, it is. It is quite expensive, and those costs are coming down a lot. So at the moment, we're and when I say we, I mean the new space industry. So you know, people that are developing these new sort of smaller technologies like cubesats with interesting business models. We're very lucky in that big, big rockets that are sending up these you know satellites the size of a truck. They might might be half a billion dollars worth of, of hardware in there. We get to actually piggyback off those rides, and so we don't get to choose which orbit we necessarily go in. You know, it's sort of you know, whatever we get, we, we, whatever we're given, we get. And it can be quite expensive. You know, at the moment, what you're probably going to be looking at, this would be a good one, you know, about $100,000, excluding all of the legal fees and, you know, insurance costs and all that sort of thing that is also impeding us here in Australia. But we also have some really interesting companies popping up. So for example, in Sydney, we've got a new one called Space Ops. There's Gilmore Space in Queensland as well. These are a couple of companies that are actually developing new rocket technologies here in Australia, and they're targeting smaller payloads. So for example, you've also got Rocket Labs, which is Kiwi, a Kiwi company. They're probably the furthest along around the world in this sort of thing. They've got a rocket that they're looking to sell for $5 million. And I think it's got a payload capacity of around 200 kilograms. Now that compares something like SpaceX's Falcon 9, which I think is somewhere around $60 million for a launch and has a much larger capacity, right? So these smaller rockets are actually fantastic because better bang for buck in getting your satellites or your hardware up into low earth orbit. And they're about to start coming in the next sort of few years or so. So there's huge demand for launch providers at the moment, particularly with these small satellites, and that's going to be addressed. And so prices will come down drastically. Now, the other really interesting thing that we are building into our program and our services that we offer as well, is that a lot of people automatically think, oh, okay, I wanna, I wanna test this bit of hardware, whether I'm, I wanna launch it, if I'm building hardware for my commercial product, I need to launch it into space, so I'm gonna build a CubeSat. I'm going to make, a, make it a satellite. And this is something that I think CubeRider found because they started off with ex, this exact idea as well. They were going to launch satellites initially. And they found that it's actually much easier to achieve the same thing by leaving it inside the International Space Station, where all of a sudden they don't have to have all the extra costs of actually, you know, the licensing and all that sort of thing for basically just dropping it out the window of the ISS. So we're discussing with potential partners at the moment for offering similar services where you can get your hardware tested Outside of the International Space Station, but it's not dropped outside So you don't have to worry about designing power subsystems communications all of that sort of thing Brings the cost drastically down enables you to show to potential investors that you've actually got something that's space Flown and proven and it's breaking that stepping stone thing down again
0: And so where does the money come from if you've got your idea and you want to start up a business? How do you live and how do you fund it?
1: Yeah. So a part of our program is we've got this concept called personal readiness level. Um, so I'll tell a little bit of a story about this one. I could be waffling a little bit. But a lot of people might know of NASA have their technology readiness level. And basically it's a scale of, you know, we're developing a new technology. At what stage is it up to? You know, is it, if it's at stage 10, then we know it's ready and it can be flown in space, et cetera, et cetera. Steve Blank, who's come up with a lot of startup theory lately, he coined the term investment readiness level which is what we use to gauge you know are you just at the idea stage have you actually validated you know have, have you tested your hypothesis have you found that you've actually you're actually solving someone's real problem have you found a market for that problem so that you can have a financially sustainable business or are you ready to scale up that sort of thing we are starting to include a third one which is personal readiness level so a lot of people have these ideas and they're like, you know, all right, maybe as a hobby, I can start on the side working on this startup. And so personal readiness level is all about, well, how will I get from having this as a hobby or a side project, that sort of thing, to have it bringing in enough revenue or maybe investment or how do I get it to the stage where I can actually start working on this full time? So we run through that as a part of our program. It's going to be different for everybody because it depends on everyone's different circumstances. So it's all about having that strategy and being aware of, you know, what strategies there are to actually get to that point. Can I just jump back a little bit as well? Yes, yes. So one of the things about space that I think a lot of people don't realize is that it's not just about satellites and rockets. Everyone sort of jumps to that, right? Because you know, generally I start talking by saying, you know, tell me what you think space technology means to you. And they're the first things that comes up. It's all aerospace. We like to also include the focus of, you know, all the down, what we call the downstream interest. So that means, you know, things on Earth like agriculture, mining, tourism, logistics, all these other industries that are adjacent to space, rely heavily on space technology, but we don't really think about it. In the coming years, space technology is going to have a huge impact. So one of the fire out there examples I give, you know, if someone's got you know, got the passion to do it, if you can come up, you know, maybe you are a developer that does uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and you want to get into space. So you can't build satellites and rockets, you're not a rocket scientist. But maybe you want to help develop a uh, augmented reality headset for a firefighter's helmet that can automatically take the data from bushfire earth observation satellites and help firefighters Battle the fires and work together—all that sort of thing. So that's for us as a a space technology, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about it, and they're the sort of applications we'd also be looking for. And so, in terms, so a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, to develop space technology, even at the moment for startups, it's going to take about seven years of development time." That's true somewhat for hardware, and like I said, a lot of that is a lot of that price and time is coming down as we have more and more space startups joining these value chains and supply chains and things are getting much more, I guess, busier in, in, you know, in the industry. But at the same time, there's a lot of problems that we can work on now on the software side and on the earth side, which are very, very similar problems to any other startup that you see out there in FinTech or AgriTech. And a lot of those companies probably could be considered space startups as well.
0: So what are some of the projects that, or some of the businesses that you're working with? What are some of the ideas that are in play at the moment?
1: Yes, it's, it's really exciting. So we've got a lot of, comp- so we, we have just finished running a pilot program of our Gemini program, which is what we're launching again in October around the world, 15 cities, which is, which is quite hectic at the moment to travel to all of those, but it's looking really good. So we've just finished this week a pilot program. It was only 12 weeks as opposed to six months. And we took people from the NASA Space Apps Challenge that ran across 82 cities around the world, I think it was 82, in late April this year. And we didn't really tell them, but we said that we were going to give them a special prize. If they could prove that not only... so. It's-
0: what, I, what is Space
1: Apps? So NASA Space Apps is a global hackathon that NASA run every year and it's the largest hackathon in the world. Over 25,000 participants in 82 cities participated this year. So essentially what a hackathon is, you spend a couple of days, you, build, you, you find, find members, you build a team and you have to try to solve a problem. It's really interesting. So it's a big problem solving exercise and you're rushing and so you're trying to come up with a solution to a big, big globally impactful problem in 48 hours essentially. This year, NASA Space Apps was very focused on Earth observation data, so things to do with the environment. You know, for example, could be could be using satellites to track the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, or it could be can we help logistics companies transport their data more optim- uh, sorry, transport their hardware more optimally around country or something like that. So we have uh, quite a few people solving problems from providing. Emergency and, and escape route systems for people that are suddenly caught in the middle of a flood. So, for example, it, you know, you've got an app on your phone. It tells you, well, there's a, there's a flood area around here. You're here on the map. You can get out by following this path here. So sort of like getting directions on Google Maps, but it tells you quickly. And it says, you know, in five minutes, you, you have to be quick, though, because in five minutes, that path's going to be taken over as well. We've got teams that are, uh, bushfire example, providing similar things for, for you know bushfire warnings and, and firefighting and that sort of thing. But we've also got people that are you know, on the hardware side. So in Perth, we've got a team that are looking at building, not CubeSats, but PicoSats. And so it's, that's a very interesting one. So they're trying to actually understand, well, what is the commercial, what commercial opportunities are there for these PicoSats? So a PicoSats, about you can fit, fit, I think, about four of them into the volume of a CubeSat. So they're really, really tiny. And so it's really interesting working with this huge range of of problems from people that are basically building software and people that are actually building space hardware and getting them to talk together and potentially working out, well, if you're building a satellite and we're we're focusing on data, well, maybe if you build a satellite, you know, we we can buy some data from you. And so that's what's really interesting as well, is getting them all to talk to each other and find out where they might benefit each other to create these new supply chains.
0: It's like building a whole new ecosystem.
1: That's exactly right. So it's, it's, it's just such a fascinating time in space at the moment because traditionally, and this is, you know, when you think about science, a lot of people think of things like the moon landing, they think of the space race. But coincidentally, uh, space and aerospace is actually, as far as I'm concerned, has been the most uninnovative industry for at least half a century. Nothing really has been achieved. There's huge, huge uh, amounts of money being poured into it, so there's no need to try to be innovative at all. You just have you know, huge money thrown at these big problems. What we're seeing with this new space industry, with this huge shift towards you know people being able to develop their own satellites and space programs from their garage, is this innovation now. So for example, we can actually use low Earth orbit to put these satellites in, even though your satellite will crash into the atmosphere in a couple of years' time. The reason is that your satellite might only cost you twenty thousand dollars to to produce and you know and eventually it'll cost you maybe twenty thousand dollars to launch it up there as well so if you want to launch a hundred satellites in this big low earth orbit thing it's going to be it provides you with extra benefits and it's it could work out much cheaper than launching a single satellite to a geostationary orbit as we would traditionally do and so there's this there's what we describe as a phase change shift it's not as if the old space industry is, is shifting into a new one. And there will be aspects of the old old space industry that obviously do mix with these new supply chains that are that are forming. But it's such a rapid shift in technology, you know, that space and space has just suddenly been democratized so access to space is, is relatively quite cheap at the moment, it's getting even cheaper. The fact that technology is so powerful, you know, you've know, you got a supercomputer that sits in your pocket and on your wrist, it's the same technology as a supercomputer from 20, 30 decades ago, and that might be a satellite that was launched there that we're still using today. 20,
0: 30 years ago? As yeah. opposed to decades? <laughs> sorry? Sorry, you said 20,
1: 30 decades ago. Oh, oh, sorry, 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 decades might be a little bit too long. But... <laughs> sorry. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, we, could, we can build these satellites that are essentially supercomputers in your garage with you know, a couple of guys who don't necessarily need to know that much about electronics because it's so easy to mash all these different technologies together now and they can provide huge benefits. So you don't need to be NASA, you don't need to be European Space Agency, you don't need to be the Indian Space Research Organisation to do these amazing things now. And especially in Australia, we can do these things cheaper and more effectively than these traditional supply chains as well. The biggest takeaway, I think, to, to get from all this is that space, it's not rocket science. Bit catchphrase but you know, that's, there's a reason why we call, we're, we're naming our roadshow It's Not Rocket Science now. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to get into the space industry. If you think that you can come up with a great idea, then we can help you turn it into a real business model. So when you were a child, uh, particularly in Australia, and you thought, well, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to be an astronaut because I'm Australian. Well, this is your chance to actually run your own space business. So if you want to check us out at moonshotspace.co, we'd be happy to get in touch.
0: Terrific. Well, Troy, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Talk soon.
0: That was Troy McCann from Moonshot X talking about how to get into the space business. You can find out more at moonshotspace.co. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Join my patrons in supporting me at patreon.com slash radio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambuka Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.